Thank you, Michael. I'm sorry I didn't check the microphone before I sent you up. All right, so that's James 3, 1 through 12. We are continuing in our James Friends with God series. We're about halfway through, and James is talking about the tongue. Now, since we were children, most of us have been taught a terrible lie. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's not true. (laughs) That's a terrible lie. The tongue is a remarkable thing. It can hurt. The tongue is more like a weapon than any other part of the body. Or perhaps it's more like a hammer. It can build, it can be constructive, or it can smash and be destructive. My first pocket knife was a a little red Swiss army knife, the classic red Swiss army knife um, that my dad gave me when I don't know how old I was, um, maybe 11 or 12. And it was the one with all the gadgets and doodads, and I thought it was incredible. And he gave it to me, uh, he, he held up his hand with the knife in his hand, and I held out my hand eagerly to take it, and he stopped. And he gave me a talking to first, right? Before he put that knife in my hand, he told me, stories about how he sliced off bits of his fingers. <laughs> um, you know, all sorts of, uh, all sorts of stories of how, what can go wrong with a knife. And he also told me about techniques and all the delight you can get from whittling and carving something beautiful with it. And he taught me how to safely open it and close it without, you know, taking off a, a fingernail. My dad was entrusting to me something beautiful, but this thing could both whittle and wound. Having a pocket knife was a tremendous responsibility. And our heavenly father, the one who spoke the world into existence is a communicating God. He's the God who speaks and he reveals himself to us through his word. And that speaking God is entrusting to us something beautiful, a tongue. But this thing can both whittle and wound. And having a tongue is a tremendous responsibility. But unlike the pocket knife, which was quite easy to manage, it's small, fits in your pocket, you don't have to pull it out all the time. Our tongues are wily and hard to control, aren't they? In fact, James argues that the tongue is the hardest thing to control in our whole bodies. So he makes the argument from the least to the, or from the greatest to the least, in verse two, where he makes what is the main point of this whole passage. James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. In other words, James is saying, if you can master that wily tongue of yours, then there's nothing you can't control because it's the hardest thing to control. If you can pick up the heaviest weight in the gym, then you know you can pick up every other weight in the gym too. That's his point. Throughout this whole letter, James has been circling one big idea that what we say and that what we do should flow out of what we believe. To put it another way, living faith is worked out in our speech and in our actions. And this is one of the speech sections. Next week, he'll go immediately to start talking about actions as well. So this section is, is, is making that same point, right? Uh, his chief concern is to look at how easy it is to actually betray our faith with our words. And he wants us to know how incredibly dangerous that is. So we're gonna look at this passage under, under three headings. One, the power of our tongues. 
two, the source of our tongues, and three, the hope for our tongues, or, or more simply, what can it do? Why does it do it? And is there any hope? And I know that I just gave you six headings, Tim Keller style, to just to mess with people who take notes. Uh, <laughs> so number one, the power of our tongues, or what can it do? And this is from, uh, this is focusing on kind of verses two to five, if you're following along in your Bible. The power of our tongues. What can this thing, what is it capable of? Well, thousands of years ago, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat of its fruit. Those who love the tongue will eat its fruits, whether death or life. The tongue has the power to heal or to destroy. And James is saying no one is more susceptible to this than teachers of the church. The teacher's tongue can either guide the horse safely to its destination or it can run it into a ditch. The teacher's tongue can guide the ship through troubled waters or it can smash it on the rocks. So it's appropriate that James cautions us, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, which is why I'm slightly shaky this morning. Not only will we teachers be constantly open to criticism and complaint, but we will give an account of our words to Christ our judge, which is far more terrifying than someone not liking something you said or bringing criticism. But that's not just true of teachers. And James doesn't contain this section to apply just to teachers. We all will give an account of our words to Christ, every one of us. And we all will be open to criticism and complaint too. Being entrusted with the power of speech is a great responsibility. That's why the sage in Proverbs 10, 19 says again, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. I was talking with Mariah about this earlier. She had noticed Sorry if I'm, I'm using you as an illustration. Um, <laughs> Mariah had noticed in reading through James, especially in this section, James doesn't say what to do with your mouth. He just says what not to do with your mouth, right? And so a lot of us read that and go, well, shoot, just tell me what to do so I can do the right thing and, and, and get the passing grade, right? But James just says, the tongue is very dangerous and then moves on <laughs> because the emphasis throughout James is God speaks, and we need to learn to be quiet. We talk too much. And I am a grade A talk too much like I'm the chief offender. James says earlier, we need to be slow to speak, quick to hear. When we speak in James, all the talking and speaking verbs, they generally are us talking to God in prayer. In the beginning, the one who lacks wisdom, let him ask God in faith with no doubting, right? Or at the end in chapter five, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The emphasis on James is if you're gonna talk, talk to God. <laughs> I lost my spot because that was off script, sorry. <laughs> Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. It's wisdom. Not many of you should become teachers. This makes sense because the tongue is wily. It's hard to control. And because the tongue is powerful, disproportionate to its size. 
right? The tongue is powerful, disproportionate to its size. So let's think about the tongue's power. Um, First of all, the tongue's power for good. Look at verses three to four. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So James uses two positive illustrations, the the horse and the ship, and he's making two points in each illustration. The first point is that the tongue is powerful, disproportionate to its size, right? It's a small member of the body, but it's capable of really big things, like a rudder or a bit. The second point that he makes in each illustration is that the tongue can be used powerfully for good. It has a positive capacity to control, to get the horse and the ship to their destination. Last Sunday, a a member of this church came up to my wife and said just a few words that were so beautifully encouraging and from the Lord that it lifted her whole countenance for days. It was, he didn't know, it was precisely what she needed to hear. It was, that brother's mouth was a conduit for the grace of God. The tongue is so powerful for good. Words can be life-giving. Such a small thing can make such a big impact. Of course, a bit is the very small thing that goes in a horse's mouth, and a, very, a horse is a very big thing that is entirely under the, the rider's control because of that one little thing in its mouth. And the same goes for the little rudder on a a giant ship. With your tongue, with your words, you can heal, give life, you can give relief, bring joy and laughter. And those are gifts of God mediated through your tongue. That's the kind of community that we are being shaped into by Christ and his Holy Spirit. The sort of community that's slow to speak to each other. But when we speak, it's like a tree of life. I long for that, don't you? A church is a big thing, like a horse or a ship, full of members of the body of Christ. And for good or for ill, my little words play a pretty big part in guiding that. So pray for me, please. And for the other teachers in Christ Church, pray for us. Pray that, (laughs) we're constantly praying that God will have the first word and the last word and that our words will be truth of life and light and healing and that our words will be guiding the church home safely like a horse or a ship on its journey. So use your words, please, to pray for us. It really matters. So that's the the tongue's potential for good, right? The power for good. Verse five, if you look at that, he has kind of a neutral statement that makes a transition to the tongue's capacity for evil. So after talking about the tongue's power for good, he transitions to this statement. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Now, depending on your disposition, you might hear boasts of great things and immediately think positive or immediately think negative. And that's good. That's how James means it, right? Boasting has been a good thing and a bad thing in the book of James so far. He says earlier in chapter one, to let the lowly brother boast of his exaltation, 
and the, the rich exalted brother to boast of his humiliation instead of boasting in your own wealth and your own status, right? So when we boast in Christ, we're just agreeing with what's true and it's a good boast according to truth. If we boast about ourselves and what we've done and what we've achieved, it's a bad boast. So boasting can be positive or negative, um, but only one boast is according to the truth. And he uses that to transition now to the second half of verse five and verse six, to the tongue's power for destruction. And he spends more time here. The tongue's power for destruction. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. The image is pretty clear. Beautiful forest, many trees, absolutely devastated and brought to nothing because of a spark. And I firmly believe that if this church, if this local body is going to one day sink or burn down, it's not gonna be lack of finances. It's not gonna be programming. It's gonna be our tongues. And that should scare us. That should sober us up. Whole churches are sunk by the words of its leaders or its members. The recent podcast about Mars Hill is a really good example of that. And it's tragic. If the church is like a forest and we all are like its trees, then leaders must pay very close attention to the great responsibility of guiding and teaching with their tongues because we might burn the forest down. God help us. He will. At the personal level, Whole lives, whole families are ruined by an uncontrolled tongue. It's so serious. And I want you to know, I didn't choose this text because I saw a problem in Christchurch that needed addressing. This is the next text in our series, right? This is the Lord's word for us today and for me. And it should be convicting. It's what the Holy Spirit does. So let's let him work on us. One little word out of control, one small lie that blossoms into a forest of lies can absolutely ruin a marriage. The words, the patterned words of speaking down to our children can break and ruin a relationship in a way that feels irrevocable between parent and child. Using your tongue to complain again and again, this one hits me, will turn you into a walking complaint. You'll just be a shadow of a human. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. So point number two, the source of the tongue. In other words, why does it do what it does? If the tongue is wily, why is it so out of control? Why is it so wily? The thing is, it is wily, but it doesn't have a mind of its own. 
right? Your tongue, like you can't just blame your tongue for what it says. You have to blame you for what your tongue says, right? I have to blame myself because the tongue is controlled by something deeper in us. That deeper thing is the heart. But before James deals with those headwaters of the tongue's spring, if you will, he informs us of a paradox. So a paradox is is basically another way of saying X and Y both seem true, but that can't be possible. That's that's something like a paradox. That's the layman's definition, right? Um, So remember, we're talking about being friends with God or friends with the world. And those are binary realities. You can't have a foot in each reality and say, I'm friends with God and I'm friends with the world. You must be wholly committed to one or the other. There is no mixing those. If you try to dabble in both, you will be a walking paradox. Like a, like a married man who romances his wife and keeps a mistress on the side. Then you're not really a married man, are you? Not really. You're a paradox. And James is telling us that there's a paradox of double speech, the paradox of how we use our tongues. This is verses nine and 10. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. If we hold the faith in Jesus Christ with integrity, then we will use our tongues accordingly because faith works out. Faith does, right? That's what Ryan was talking about a week or two ago. And if we have a living faith in Christ, it will come through our speech. In Thomas Watson's book, no relation, um, The Great Gain of Godliness, uh, he says, the country to which a man belongs is known by his language. He who belongs to the Jerusalem above speaks the language of Canaan. This is what we were talking about with the kids a few minutes ago. We spent a couple years in Scotland, as most of you know, and when we were there, people knew we were American pretty much straight away. It wasn't the way we dressed. It wasn't our lifestyle or our music. It was, it was our talk. It was our speech. You walk onto the bus. <laughs> this actually was horrible. When they reopened after COVID, like everything started opening up a little bit at the end of our time, we'd get on a bus to go somewhere and they would immediately say like, oh, how long are you visiting for? You're like, no, we live here. <laughs> Stop treating us like tourists. But they heard our voice and they thought, you're not from around here, are you? We know you're an American or maybe a Canadian, but I guess that's still America as well. <laughs> so Christians who hold the faith in Christ will speak as Christians. There's no alternative, right? To bless God with your mouth and then to gossip about a person made in his image or to cuss them out. It's the language of the world. It'd be like me claiming to be from Australia while speaking like this. Everyone around me would be like, there's no way you're from Australia. You sound very American, right? Our words will do that. The way that we speak will betray to everyone around us who we belong to. Does Christ have our heart or not? So why does the tongue do what it does? Verses 11 and 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? 
Rhetorical question, the answer is no. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? No. Or a grapevine produce figs? Also no. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, each of these three illustrations, the spring, the fig tree, and the pond, they're all things with a source. Do you notice that? The spring and the pond are fed from somewhere deeper, or perhaps from the rains, and the fig tree grows from a seed planted in the soil. They have a source for their waters and a source for their fruit. And James is answering this question of why the tongue does what it does by gesturing toward the tongue's source, the headwaters of the tongue, as it were. So let's think back to another proverb. James is steeped in wisdom literature. So it's right that we take Proverbs as our guide. Proverbs 10.20, it's made up of two lines of poetry and the way Hebrew poetry works is they rhyme ideas, not words, right? So there's two lines in this poem. Line one, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. Line two, the heart of the wicked is of little worth. Which is it, Solomon? Is it the tongue or the heart? What are we talking about? And he says, yes. That's why Jesus says what we read to the kids from Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. And the headwaters of the tongue is the heart. What springs up out of your mouth has its source somewhere deeper. The fruit of your mouth comes from the seed of your heart. These three illustrations of the spring, the fig tree, and the pond, they all have to do with sustenance, with nutrition, with, you know, being satisfied and filled. Our words are supposed to nourish. They're supposed to sustain people. They're supposed to be life-giving, like the brother who lifted up Becca with a few simple words last week. And for our words to feed and nourish and sustain, we must have a source that is outside of ourselves. That has to be the case. Because left to ourselves, our hearts are sinful and will produce sin out of our mouths because that's what a sin tree does, is it gives death fruit. So that leads us to point number three, the the hope for our tongues, or is there any hope, right? Verses seven and eight. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. So earlier I said that verse two is the main point of this passage where he says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. If that's the main point, then verse eight that we just read is the counterpoint. No human being can tame the tongue. In other words, your tongue flows out of your heart and your heart is sinful. What are you going to do now? (laughs) Reading those two verses together paints kind of a hopeless picture. If someone doesn't sin with his tongue, he's perfect, but no human can, can tame the tongue. So what hope is there? How can we trust our teachers? How can we be vulnerable with each other and trust each other? If death and life are in the power of the tongue and we're powerless, what hope? Think back through all of James's illustrations, right? Horses have riders. Ships have pilots or captains. 
Springs and ponds have source waters. Fig trees have seeds in the ground. And we have Jesus Christ. That's our hope. In chapter one, James said, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able, powerful to save your souls. If you have received the implanted word, that is, if you have humbly submitted yourself to Jesus, then not only are your sins forgiven, but as we read in Jeremiah 31 at the beginning of this service, you've got a new heart. His words, his law is written on it now. Your heart is inclined toward him. And if you don't know what that feels like for your heart to be inclined toward Christ, it's that feeling of, I want to love Jesus. That is the inclination toward Jesus. Your horse has a new rider and your ship has a new pilot. We just have to live like that's true because it already is true. For our words to be life-giving and good, for our tongues to be another outworking and expression of our faith in Christ, we must let another speak first. We must let the word of God rule in our hearts, and that will be the healing for our tongues. In the book of Numbers, we're told, have you read Numbers recently? It's so good. As a kid, I thought it was so boring, but it's so cool. There are a lot of numbers. You can skip those. You have my permission. But the story bits are incredible. And there's a story in Numbers 21 um, about the Israelites as they're wandering through the desert with Moses and God, and they begin to grumble. They begin to use their words to complain about their sustenance. We're thirsty. Uh, Numbers 21.5, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So the people sinned with their tongues. They spoke against God and against Moses with the tongue that James says is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So how did God respond? Numbers 21, six and following. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents, venomous serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died because that's a serious, serious offense against God. The answer to the poisonous tongues of the people was poisonous snakes from God. So the people are, are miserable and they're dying and they ask Moses to pray for them that God might send some relief, some salvation from these venomous snakes that are afflicting them from their own sin turned back on themselves. And God responds by telling Moses to make an image of one of those snakes, a bronze serpent, and to put it up on a big pole and that everyone who looks at it will be healed. Think about that. The very thing that was afflicted, that afflicted them, that was afflicting them, would be the thing that would heal them in some sort of inside out way. Look to the snake on the pole for your healing. And centuries later, Jesus of Nazareth said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our poisonous tongues have cursed, gossiped, slandered, lied, and torn down. So what's the antidote? 
It's looking to the Son of Man, lifted up like a serpent. It's at the cross that we find our tongues healing. That's the only place where our hope is. When you go to the cross, Jesus has no words of spite or complaint, no words of slander for you. All his words for you are words of hope and healing and mercy and righteousness. Receive the implanted word with meekness and you will be a fig tree that bears figs to the glory of God, a spring that bears fresh water to the glory of God. We lifted up our venom tongues and blamed God for our thirst. He lifted up a venom snake to heal us from our worst. Our words rang out, crucify the one who loves us best. We lifted up the life, the word, and silenced him in death. With drying tongue, the word of life spoke the words, I thirst, that we might drink, the life has died, and healed us from our worst. But now our tongues can glorify the life who conquered death. The word who lives, no more to die, speaks comfort every breath. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank and praise you that you, though you knew no sin, became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you for what you did for us by turning our evil inside out and letting us see it for what it is while you bear the punishment for it so that we can live. Though we've offended you in so many ways, that we've used our tongues like a whip to tear down our friends, our spouses, our parents, our children, our neighbors, our coworkers. People you love, people you died for, we're sorry. And we look to the word of life hanging on the cross and we see our sin and we hate our sin and we see our savior and we love our savior. And we come now to you for healing and we thank you that we are not guessing, but there is a certain hope that your spirit immediately begins to bear fruit in his people. When we humbly submit ourselves to you, you lift us up, you ennoble us, you shower your love on us and you begin transforming us more into your image. And we, we just love you for that all the more. <laughs>